energy. Welcome to the Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. What is up, Activators? And welcome to another episode of the Activated Authors Podcast. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by the incredible Renee Gallant. Say hi, Renee. Hola. <laughs> Renee Gallant spent the biggest part of her childhood growing up in North Texas, hiding behind bushes or sitting in trees immersed in story of mystery and adventure and scratching out her own Trixie Belden fan fiction. But it was only after reaching middle age, having an empty nest and being bitten by a creepy little eight-legged foe that she thought to pick up pen and paper once more and lose herself in a fictional world where anything was possible. Unfortunately, no, she did not turn into Spider-Man, nor even The Tick, but instead became an advocate for autoimmune sufferers, a grandmother and finally a published author. After a 20-year hiatus where she was all things to all people, Renee Gallant switched her focus back to herself and her first love, words. Hi, Renee. Hi, Dan. <laughs> How's it going? And I th- so just to front this, I think it's probably worth saying that you are a member of Activated Authors. Um, but before that, you've been in my nano boot camps and all this kind of stuff. So we we know each other fairly well, I'd like to think at this point. Um, mm-hmm. though I'm sure that some stuff will come out that, that will amaze me during this chat. Oh, I'm um, sure. <laughs> yes. But I have loved watching your journey from as, as far as you've kind of like jumped into the group and seeing all the things that you're working on. Um, but I do want to I want to start by kind of going off of what we mentioned there about Spider-Man and the tick. And obviously you didn't inherit those powers, but if you were a superhero, what would your superpower be? Uh, Why did I tell my husband the other day my superpower was? Maybe it was complaining. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like, it's my superpower. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) What do you utilize complaining as a superpower? I mean, obviously you can get like discounts and free food and stuff. No, not that kind of, just whining, whining in general. <laughs> the <laughs> Procrastination, whiner. that's a good one too. Yeah. Well, what power would you want? What power would I want? Yeah. To read minds. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. I feel like that's. I know what people it. really think. I feel like that's a burden. You think? Well, I don't, I don't know. It depends. You, you'd have to, it's always specify the power, isn't it? Like, can you hear one person selectively or do you just hear everyone all the time? Okay. I always want to hear one person selectively. Yeah, I would be. I would want to be able to zone in on that one person. Jesus, that's terrifying. I know to avoid you at conferences now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but tell the uh, tell the listeners all about your writing journey. Obviously, we covered um, kind of your general life journey, but where did your writing begin, and how did you get to where you are now? And it began in like elementary school. I did some fan fiction, and I did some little short stories, and then through high school and stuff I did some poetry um I was in a a band and I wrote a lot of songs <laughs> yeah, it's a new bit of information okay go on <laughs> yeah and then when I graduated high school I was going to be that was my plan I was going to be a writer and then I had children and then I had to feed children mm-hmm. so I had to make money and back then that was a long time that was a long time ago self-publishing was not a thing so I had got the book with a list of like agents and publishers and everything. And it was just overwhelming. And I was like, I can't do this. This is too much. And then 
jump ahead 20 years and here I am. Jumping back to the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And you have three books out so far. Mm-hmm. Three and a half, if you include the short story collection that you're involved uh-huh. in. Um, let's, let's jump back to sort of creativity and, and the, early, the early start of that, because you mentioned in your bio as well um, that you used to read a lot, hiding in bushes and sitting in trees. Um, what was your first sort of love affair with fiction? Do you remember sort of the earliest book that inspired you that made you think, oh, I'd, I'd love to do more with story? It was probably the Trixie Builder mysteries. They were mystery stories. I was probably... 10, 11, and me and a friend of mine would get like a dollar fifty from my dad on Saturday and ride our bikes up to the little store and get the next installment of this mystery series and devour it and then have to wait another week to go get another book. But I think that was the first. Now the first book I remember reading was Dr. Seuss. Mm. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Classic something fish old fish something new fish <laughs> <laughs> it sticks most of it sticks yeah what was what was it about the Trixie Belden books that you feel especially in hindsight grabbed you at that point it was uh I guess I wouldn't even say YA maybe like boxcar children except a little bit older than that the mm. characters and it was mysteries and it was adventure and I like a good mystery. Do you like to try and obviously work them out before yes. you get to the end? Are you, are you generally quite successful? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. I love okay. Encyclopedia Brown too. Those yeah. are always one of my faves. Nice. And then do you remember the first thing that you wrote? The first thing I wrote was probably in the fourth grade. It was a, it was a homework paper that my teacher had given us an assignment and it was a story and we had to, con- we had to continue with the story. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many pages I can't remember. And so the next day I had, we had all turned it in and she stood up in front of the class and she's like, only one student did what I asked them to do. And then she read my paper in class and everybody was like, you wrote that you did that. And I was like, I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Like she said, <laughs> continue the story. Cause like I had conversations with people and, you know, I don't know. I just did the thing. And then she told me that I would be a writer. And I was like, okay. That's it. Um, and how, how instrumental do you think her approval was for you in terms of belief and carrying that forward and thinking, you know, as the years have gone on, this is something I, I want to do. Huge. I dedicated my first picture, my first wow. published book. Yeah. Oh, I love it that. It was huge. Yeah. Because yeah. I find that so many people, and this is this is a real bugbear of mine, that a lot of teachers don't understand the power of their words. And so, yeah. so many people, friends of mine, you know, authors that I've met in the space were told at school, this is not for you. You're not going to do this. Like, you can't write all that kind of stuff. And even as a throwaway comment, like, how can you determine that for someone when they're sort of 13, 14, or even, right. even younger? Yeah. And then for you, the power to the opposite of you're going to be a writer. Obviously, that's that's created something in you that's that's kept you powering forward and, and kept writing with you, even after sort of taking a hiatus where you were raising children and, and returning back to that. When you, so you wrote that first story, your teacher said, you're going to be a writer. Where did you take it? from there because you mentioned short story well you mentioned finishing stories you mentioned poetry 
Um, at that point, was it sort of just experimental and playing with different things? What was it about sort of poetry as well that, that grabbed you? Yeah, it was really experimental. Um, the poetry started out as songs that I would just kind of alter a little bit to enter these poetry contests with. And um, what else did I do during that time? I did, I had, so stupid. I had a spiral notebook that I was writing a book about. I loved Bon Jovi at the time. And it was like the story about Bon Jovi and this girl that like fell and hurt her knee and they had to take her on the bus. And it was just like, I don't know, some long adventure thing. But I had a friend who would then pass it on to another friend who would pass it on to another friend. And so people would read it as we went and then they'd give it back to me and they're like, hurry up and write the next part. And so then I'd write the next part and then it'd make the rounds around the school again. And that, I did that for a while. Oh, that's a confidence booster. I wish I still had it, but I don't. Oh, do you not? I do not. Oh, that's such a shame. That's yeah. such a shame. So what, yeah. what lessons did you take from that? Was it, how, how did you improve your craft and work on the things that you wanted to write from that? What kind of feedback were you getting from people? Uh, I think it made me want to make everything more suspenseful. Mm. Like I, I love suspense, I love reading suspense. And I wanted, I wanted them to want more. So I tried to make, end it as suspensefully as I could. Mm-hmm. So that when it came back around to me, I could carry on and make it even more suspenseful. And obviously it was gripping enough that that was doing the rounds and people were asking if that is next sort of, sort of chapters. And I guess that must've helped form kind of the beginnings of what a writing habit could look like for you mm-hmm. because what was the sort of turnaround in terms of how fast you were writing those pages and how you were getting them out to people? Super fast. I probably, I probably wrote them in one night, you know, it came back to me. I'd scribble them out in one sitting, maybe two, and then it'd go make the, the rounds again. Oh, I love that. I love that. How old were you then? 15, 16. Okay. So. And then, Jump forward a few years, and obviously we mentioned the buyer, but you went on a hiatus. You went into motherhood, and you obviously had to look after children and provide and do all that kind of um, very, very important, very, very honourable work. Um, How did creativity manifest itself in that period? Were you still creating in any way, or was that kind of a bit of a a drier spell for you? At at the beginning, I was. um, I found some stories and stuff that I had started some books I had started writing, but I didn't finish them. And I've always been a creative person, paint, draw, crochet, you know, then I've tried it a little bit ADD in there, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I couldn't, I couldn't finish anything. That was just a big thing for me. So Mm -hmm. as I got older and more mature and my children were older and needed less one-on-one time with me, then I had to teach myself to finish what I started. That became a big thing for me. Yes. And we'll definitely dive into that because that's, yeah, that, that's right yeah. in my warehouse. Um, so obviously during that period, you were still doing little bits here and there. You weren't finishing anything. Yeah. I'm trying to work out how because obviously lots of people will be living in that situation in which you know it's a busy life it's a busy household obviously you have to prioritize in order to look after children and make sure that you know life stuff happens first um 
how did you feel around your creativity and was that something that you were itching and burning to do or kind of did you just get to the point where you accepted that was a step uh, that I had to take a step back during that period at the very beginning of motherhood um I was still itching and burning I would drive to a little community college I drive like an hour and then we moved and it was like an hour and a half and I still did that and I studied journalism for a very short period of time and I wrote for the local paper for about a year and so at the beginning yes I was still itching and burning then it got to the point where I had to do something to make more money Mm -hmm. and get out of the job that I was in. That was like a dead end job and was making me insane. I thought I was going to lose my mind. And I was pretty good at doing hair. I'd always done my sister's hair for all her dance recitals and stuff like that. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do hair for prom this year. I'm going to just get a few people. And if it goes well, I'm going to beauty school. If, if I don't do good, if it sucks, like then that's not for me. Mm. And I did well. It went great. I enrolled in beauty school and God bless my father's heart. He came to me <laughs> with this sheet of paper of all the, all the occupations that made more money than doing hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. That you could do that. You could finish in like two years and it made so much more money than doing hair. Mm-hmm. Was, was this a, after or before? I think it might have been before. Okay. But there was just enough rebellion left in me that I was like, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've made a 22-year career of it. It's not too shabby. Yeah. I suppose within that as well, there is, I know you have to work within the, the confines of obviously what people ask for, but I suppose there is a creativity to that. There is. It's there's a lot of creativity to it. And I think that's part of why I've stayed with it so long. It's, it's something different every day. It's not the same thing day in, day out. You know? Yeah. And I think that has helped keep my interest. Mm. And you went through a spate of not finishing things, which, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've certainly remember being in that place a fair, fair few years back. Um, and, it's, and it's frustrating as hell. How, how did you approach getting to the point where you did start finishing things. I know we've spoken sort of off camera about, as you say, this is sort of a real important part of, of you now, but to make that switch and to um, honor yourself enough to make that a part of your value system. How did you, how did you conquer that and get from, I'm never finishing anything into, right. I'm going to finish the things that I start. I, I don't exactly know. I can't tell you, you know, every step I took, I just know I got tired of feeling not really like a quitter, you know, but I just got, I felt tired of not feeling like an adult. (laughs) There you go. You know, and, and after, I think it was after I proved that I was terrified before I bought my hair business and it took so long to go through. I told my husband, I said, maybe God's trying to tell me I am not mature enough to do this. Like I can't because I was terrified. I did, was not responsible enough to run this business. And I think that was part of it. Mm. Becoming responsible. And then I was just like, okay, you're, in the, you're a freaking adult. You're going to have to finish it. Yeah. It just has to be done. And then and what was the first thing you finished after that? Probably crochet and a baby blanket. Nice. Yeah. How long did that take? Who knows? <laughs> Probably a very long time. 
<laughs> yeah, but it is, it is such a big jump. And I, you know, I'm I'm 31 and I still feel like I'm, I, I know I am adult, but I'm still yet to feel adult. Um, and But responsibility really did shift for me when I became a dad. That really was the big instigator. Before that, it was like faffing around here. But I mean, I think even then for a few years when baby was a baby there was still that element of um like you just the reality doesn't sink in and you don't hit that thing um and you begin to reach a point of understanding that you are what you do and you are what you finish yeah and as you say that is that is a powerful thing to switch but like you say you it 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 seems like such a big I mean it seems like I'm sure it 100% was like such a big undertaking to take on a business and run it yourself Talk me through that decision because obviously you could have worked for other people, I'm sure, and kind of gone in other salons and, and sort of been. I mean, I don't obviously know the industry, but yeah. <laughs> the way that works in um, England, I know that people can kind of like rent out slots in different people's salons and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, what was the impetus behind that decision to to own your own business and to start on that path? So, being a hairdresser is is very difficult to get started and build your clientele, and especially in a small town that I live in. And I went to work for a salon who had a great reputation. Um, they did a lot of continuing education. They were just very professional, which was what I wanted to be a part of. And I was there four years, I think. And the salon owner had a brain bleed. She was, I asked her the other day because she still comes into the shop. She was 49 years old. And she had a brain bleed and she was out for nearly a year. Well, while she was out, I did her customers. So I just inherited this business. And then the doctor told her he really did not think she should go back to work. And so she talked to me and asked me if I wanted to buy this shop and the house next door because they were side by side. And her house was a lot better than the house I was living in at the time. And so I talked to my dad, I talked to my husband, we discussed it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. But then, like I said, it went from like April, it took from April to October to get this done. And the longer it took, the more scared I got. I'm like, okay, maybe this was not for me. God is like, this is, you are not responsible. (laughs) And I tried to back out at one point. I tried to back out and then she cried and I was soft hearted and I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did, but I just kind of inherited a set business. Mm-hmm. A set um, clientele. What were some of those early lessons that you learned from say the first year of, of running that business? Is there anything that sticks out as sort of, carried forward with you and, and, and given you a way to guide yourself just being more responsible and I think working with her for four years really helped that because she is a very regimented person I am not and so I tried to take some of my lessons from her mm-hmm. um did I hold on to all of those no like my taxes really stress me out because I put them off to the last minute <laughs> <laughs> where I should do it every month but so you know I kind of fell off a little bit but and how about in terms of building a clientele and growing the business to where it's sustainable for you my daughter would die she's 
consistency, consistency, consistency. That is what I preach to all the girls who have ever worked for me, to the girls who work for me now. You cannot do anything if you're not consistent. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't build a business. Uh, you can't run a restaurant. If, if customers don't know when you're going to be open or when you're going to be there, they will eventually go somewhere else. And I took a little hiatus from Jen here for about two years. Um, we had moved to a different town, but I would come home on the weekends, like one weekend a month on a Saturday and just work from 10 in the morning until 10 at night. Mm -hmm. Just cram them all in in one day. And then when we moved back, I still had the business and everything. And it was really hard to sit in the beauty shop and watch the other girl do the clients that you used to do. Mm. It was so difficult. And sometimes I'd just have to get up and go to the house. I couldn't stand it. Mm. But God bless the girl. I love her, still love her, but she's not a consistent person. And so the fourth time of somebody calling and saying, Hey, is so-and-so there? And I'm like, nope. And they're like, do you know when she's coming in? Hadn't heard from her today. I don't know. And they're like, well, can you do it? So it took like three months for me to get on my clientele back. Like, Big lesson because I'm always there. Always there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. That's what it takes. yeah. I definitely think it's, you know, industry dependent, especially more in sort of um, the service industry. Like it's, it's such a huge thing. And I say this to, to people a lot when it comes to, um, you know, providing content for people to read regularly. So for example, with the other stories podcast, we were very clear from the start that it's every Monday, we don't miss a Monday. Because if you miss a Monday, people will go to someone else who's delivering every single Monday. And that's what happens. Um, and I think, you know, setting the expectation as well. So she was she was making these appointments and they're not turning up. I think it's yeah. difference to saying I do this date and then this date and this date. And sort of yeah. being clear with people as you move forward, it's, yeah. it's not yeah. disappointing the customers. Exactly. If you if you only want to work two days a week, then tell your customers that that's what you're working so that they know. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to start your day till 11 o'clock, then tell them that you better be there at 11 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And I say that and I lecture. <laughs> um, am I very consistent with my email newsletter? No, not really. <laughs> well, this is this is kind of where I'd love to get to because, you know, you learn these lessons from running a business. What lessons have you taken into running your author business? Because you've been um, published since 2020, writing since, or writing sort of these novels since, I want to say, 2017 or 2018? 2018. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So obviously you've, you've been sort of putting together the, the mechanisms of your author business behind you. You've got three books that are well-reviewed and doing well. And so what lessons have you taken from running a business and passing to your author businesses? And what lessons haven't you? <laughs> I would say consistency and not consistency. <laughs> <laughs> At the very beginning, I was very consistent. I was very nose to the grindstone because I was determined to make it work. And then I got, which 2020 has been hard on everybody. You know, everybody's had a hard time since then. But it's like so much just happened. You just kind of hit rock bottom. So I'm trying to dig myself out of the pit that I have been in. And I'm going to try to be more consistent like I was in the beginning because I have kind of fallen off that wagon and that's not a good thing, but with the help of some very smart people, I am like pushing my way up. <laughs> so what tricks so. have you learned to try and build your consistency back up? Cause it is, as you say, it, it is 
easy to fall off a wagon and hard to climb back on. So Mm -hmm. is there anything that you've been doing particularly to try and be more consistent with your writing? Being part of a writer's group does help where we do sprints on certain days at certain times. And that has, that has really helped a lot. And just try and just every morning, I can't say try because I'm just starting to get out of the pit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Try to write every morning. You know, I have between five in the morning to seven in the morning to write. I try to do that. Uh, I was trying to write in the evenings. I don't really try to do that anymore. I try to spend time with my husband when he's home. Mm -hmm. And so really like five to seven is just my peak time that I can write. Yeah. And I try to do that Monday through Friday. And then if he's gone on a Saturday, I will spend all day Saturday in my office doing stuff. Am I always writing? No. Sometimes I sit at my computer and I'm like, this is too hard. I can't do it. <laughs> so I'll go paint something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just yeah. trying to do it every day. And it's a process. And I, I, I definitely, I want to dive more um, into the community stuff. And <laughs> I'm always, I'm always wary. This is the Activated Authors podcast. We're talking about the Activated Authors community and it is the community that I run that you're a part of. Um, so I don't want it to come across um, sort of self-serving, but at the same time, like I, I fully believe in what we're doing. I fully believe in like people like you in the community as well. And so, you know, there are advantages to that. And so when I, when I ask the questions, I just want to preface that with like, none of this has been set up. I'm not leading you to say certain <laughs> things. Like by all means, if you want to, if you want to bitch and moan about the community, that's fine. Do it on your own time. Um, <laughs> but you joined so it was in 2020 at the end of 2020 um you joined in the boot camp um and from then kind of went into my Wilcox writers group and went into the activated authors group and you've been sort of a core pillar within the community itself um constantly there pretty much every single session what are the benefits you find from being in a writer's community oh my gosh there's so many there's so many uh you have it's like a supportive family that understand your frustration because my mother one time I was really stressed out trying to come up with a different ending to a book I had split it in half and I had to come up with a different ending different beginning and I was really stressing on it and my mom's like it's not supposed to be stressful and I'm like you just don't know <laughs> but writers know that we love it but yes it is stressful and so a group of writers like you all speak the same language and you feel a lot of the same thing and if you're having a really down day and you just feel like you there's no way you can create anything it's okay and we're all there to lift you up and support you mm-hmm. and like just take a rest day it'll be okay you can come back to it when you feel better and it's just nice having that sounding board and ideas and uh there's been some fantastic marketing information shared mm-hmm. in the group lately. It, it's just really invaluable to have a group like that. Yeah. I think the good thing as well with these kind of groups is, you know, as they get bigger, more information like that is going to be shared. And so it kind of comes its own little um, engine and it, it, it just rolls. But I think you hit, you hit on a very, very good point there, which is, I think something that I learned quite early on is like no one understands writers 
apart from writers or right. probably more broadly artists do but I think everyone's got their own little niche their own little problems and I was quite lucky in that I found a group of writers within probably about four or five months of my writing journey the Hawk and Cleaver guys who I kind of did a lot of stuff with and I was surrounded with those people but um you're right like my my parents don't understand what it is to be a writer like my my brother my sister don't a lot of my close friends don't um and actually sort of over the years my friendship group has drifted from the people who don't write to the, the people that do um, and I think just because that's a core part of of you know what it is that makes my life and it's you sometimes you just need people in the trenches to like you say know that it's okay to take a bit of stress off yourself or you know maybe you can work a little bit harder and you're being a bit too soft on yourself and it's yeah. just having those conversations and speaking to people because what I what I find very very interesting is we've got a whole range of people in that group from you know people in their early 20s who have never published to people sort of going into their 50s or 60s and you know people from all different backgrounds different genres but the universal truths of what people have to do to write is the same mm-hmm. it's the same mm-hmm. no matter what genre what niche how old you are how young you are it's the same mm-hmm. yep. yeah and what I found really interesting as well is uh, earlier on, you mentioned about the fact that you bought all the information that you needed when you were younger to get started on publishing. And obviously that would involve pitching out to agents and trying to get query letters and stuff. And then that was too much work for you. And now yeah. we've come full circle and you've chosen the independent publishing route. Yeah, that's like, so when I accidentally outed myself on Facebook, that I was writing again. <laughs> that was completely accidental. One, a couple of my friends were like, well, are you going to self-publish or are you going to traditional publish? And I'm like, well, traditional. Because I didn't even know that self-publishing was a thing. Mm-hmm. That was like in 2018. So it had been around for a while, but I had never heard of it. I didn't know it existed. And so I looked into it. I started looking into it more. And I was like, I am absolutely doing traditional because I can't learn this much I didn't even know how to use track changes in word like I have lived <laughs> in this hairdressing bubble for 20 years <laughs> and I spoke that language but no other language mm-hmm. and so over the next year year and a half that I wrote the book that I wrote a few books and dug deeper into it I was like, I am 100% indie publishing. I heard so many horror stories of getting so close to publishing. And then the publisher's like, eh, nah, we're not going to do it. But we're still going to hold on to your book. Yeah. You can't, you know, do something else with it. And I was like, yeah, I don't think so. I'm not going to work for like five years for a company to say they're going to publish it, not publish it. And then I still can't do anything with it. So. And I learned, I learned stuff. I'm still learning. Oh, there's a lot to learn. Not always, there's a lot to learn. Yeah. I find that every time I write a book, I still have that thing in my head of like, oh, maybe I'll pitch this out. And then within sort of about five minutes, I'm like, no, not for me. And, you know, there, there is uh, something to be said for traditional still, but like I, I certainly am in your camp of just, I want the control of my book and to know that I can put it out and that it can get into the hands of the readers that want to want to see it. Um, how did you approach learning all of that side of stuff? What were your sort of key resources to helping you understand what it was to independently publish? A lot of podcasts. So Joanna Penn's podcast is invaluable. I think I went like back to the beginning 
Jeez. And <laughs> listen, and I would jump, you know, look for certain subjects that I needed to. Uh, lots of articles, just digging into stuff. And I think I jumped into too much at the beginning, things that I didn't have to do that I thought I did. So I just did them. But um, also, Mark Dawson's podcast. Mm-hmm. I listen to his a lot. Uh, so there were some things that I did that later I heard Joanna Penn say, you don't have to do that at the beginning. Like, just just wait. And I'm like, oh, well, sorry, done. <laughs> like what? <laughs> sorry is, there out any, there. is there anything specific that you can think of? I don't know. Not off the top of my head. I just remember thinking, well, crap, I wish I'd known that. I could have spent less time doing that and more time doing mm-hmm. something else. But she she has always really stressed going wide with your books. And then I was, I can't remember, I think it might have been the Career Author Summit in 2020 that we had to do virtually that I heard her speak and I got, you know, we got to ask questions and stuff. And as a new author, she said, and this floored me, she said, go in KDP mm. for your first series learn the ropes, learn how it works. And then you can pull it out. Yeah. I'm like, pull it out after a couple of books. She said, no, finish the series in KDP and then pull it out. If you decide you want to go wide, she said, but, but just to learn the ropes and learn the basics. And that just floored the shit out of me. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought she'd say that. No, she's very much a, constant proponent of wide um Mm -hmm. and your books at the minute they're wide correct Mm -mm. they are ku Mm -hmm. yeah Mm. they're ku and was that because of joanna's advice Mm -hmm. Mm, i like that i mean it makes sense because there is so much to learn when it comes around to writing your first book editing it doing the covers all that stuff advertising that's one of the things that i did right off the bat that people were like you don't really want to spend time and money advertising your first book. You know, you want to have several books under your belt. I just jump right in with the first book. Yeah. yeah. So for people who are listening, who this might be your first ever writing podcast, or you might be unaware of that. The advice at the minute generally is to get at least three books out before you start actually pointing advertising revenue to it. Cause it just makes more sense. Cause then once somebody's finished one book, they can jump to the next one, preferably in series not always depends on who you are as a writer and what kind of approach you take. Um, and what have you learned? How, how do you approach now? Because you are, you've written uh, three books in your series. Um, you are working on book number four, soon to start working on book number five, because that's how numbers work. Um, <laughs> what have you learned from writing that first book that you carry through to the subsequent books? Um, I think I put in the first book, I put a lot of unneeded information in it. So I've learned how to like, narrow that down, cut it out as I'm writing instead of (laughs) after you've written the whole book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a lot of eyes on that first book. I did like a developmental edit and I had several beta readers and I had, I got uh, sample edits from probably five different editors. And so I could compare all of their notes and see and a lot of it was, it was just too much information and drawing attention to the wrong things. They're like, 
you have described this person in a lot of detail. He better be a big part of this book. <laughs> and I was like, well, let me cut out five paragraphs of that. <laughs> let me narrow that down. Because mm-hmm. he's sort of integral part, but not that big. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to say that um, I learned to plot, but I haven't. <laughs> and I'm still kind of hodgepodge all over the place, but mm-hmm. yeah. Would you say you have a process at the minute or is it, as you say, just go with the flow depending on each book? Just go with the flow. Mm. And am I happy with it? No, I don't like it. I feel like it should be more streamlined. And by this point, I should be more streamlined, but I'm not. And you're producing. And I'm producing mm-hmm. slowly, not as fast as I would like. Yeah. But yeah. But oh. maybe that will get better you know, in the next year as I come out of the burnout mm. thing, because it was, it was a uh, full burnout, like emotional, physical, mental yeah. work. Just like completely. Yeah. And I mean, obviously it can be said for a lot of, well, not even just writers, but everyone that 2020 and, and COVID and all that kind of stuff definitely burned the world out. And I know that um I've, spoken to a couple of therapists over the last few years for various reasons and sort of coaches as well in terms of business and every single one of those points back to the fact that the burnouts and the um I guess sort of brain fog isn't uncommon among a lot of people but I don't think a lot of people attribute it because to um the coronavirus because it's quote over and obviously it's still technically not but that's a whole that's a whole different conversation um but coming out of that kind of burnout is tough. Um, is there anything you did specifically um, to kind of help you get into a place where you started to roll back into the writing again? Was there anything specific that you did that you um, contribute that to, to? Meditation has helped. Hmm. Uh, meditate in the morning. It has helped focus me. I try to meditate right before I start writing. Hmm. I do like a little guided thing for focus and clarity. Uh, I bought some teas that are like for focus and clarity. Nice. <laughs> to try to get rid of the brain fog uh, and taking time for myself being kind to me. That is something I have learned from activated authors because I have not ever really been very kind to myself. And for all of my life, I have just worked for other people and done for everybody. And, and that's a hard habit to break. And mm-hmm. for me, and those people surrounding me, <laughs> they don't love it, <laughs> uh-huh. but I have to, I cannot keep, I could not keep doing all the things I was doing. Mm-hmm. So being kinder to myself and taking a break and trying not to feel guilty about it. Which is hard. Oh, guilt's my, my other superpower. Yeah. I'm really good at feeling guilty about crap that I have no control over. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the guilt club too. That's a, that's a conversation that repeatedly comes up with people. Um, yeah. Just guilt over stupid things. Like even if I go for a walk without the dog, I feel guilty that yeah. the dog's not there. And I'm like, oh, yep. Yep. everything, everything. Um, but yeah, I think that is part of the journey that I have enjoyed watching with you because as you say, you know, you are essentially matriarch. You are, you know, the, the central pillar that holds a lot of things together, family-wise and business-wise and everything else. So to also then hold a writing career alongside that um is no is no 
small feat at all and you know i can i can imagine it's a hard journey to go through trying to set those boundaries and and, and getting on that path um yeah. is there any advice that you'd give to anyone who is perhaps in a situation of where you were a year or two years ago someone who is that that matriarch really wants to drive to do something creative but doesn't feel like they have time or that they're not allowed is there anything you'd like to say to that person uh you are allowed it might take you a little while to realize <clears throat> that you're allowed and I would not have got to that point if it wasn't for activated authors and um, you and Sam and Laura in particular and Pan are, you know, have really, really helped me realize that it is okay to care about yourself. You yeah. don't have to be self, self-sacrificing all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, you've got to find a community. You've got to find a group whether it's meditation, whether it is listening to uplifting podcasts, whether it is counseling, you've got to find a way to break free of that guilt. Mm-hmm. So find that your you people. Can, yeah, find your people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, because again, I was definitely down that sort of guilt train a couple of years back of doing lots of things to everybody else. That That's something that I learned from my mom, who I've learned from her granddad. That's just like the way that our family is. Um, and being that person who is or holds himself responsible to all these different things, it feels selfish to put yourself first. Yeah. And I know the this kind of uh, analogy has been used a lot, but it's, it's one that only sort of ingrained itself recently in me is the whole um, when a plane's going down, you need to employ your oxygen mask first. Right? You have to be able to take care of yourself to then functionally and to your best ability then look after everyone else. And it's not a selfish thing at all. It is right. a necessary thing to live a happy, healthy life that yeah. you can then have other people benefit from that from. Yeah. It's very hard to be patient with people and understand. I always thought that I was patient with them and understood their hurts and stuff, but then it got to where I felt like I didn't. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm like, focusing a little more on myself, my mental health, that kind of thing. I'm getting back to the point where I can see (laughs) their hurts and, and try to help them, but not to the point that it hurts me. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I want to touch on, if we may, uh, just very, very quickly, um, your battle with Lyme disease. And uh, I wonder if you can give the listeners a little overview on kind of how that came about. And then also, how that affects your writing and how you sort of move forward with, with living with Lyme disease. So I got, I got bit by a tick on May 7th, 2015. It was a Thursday. Roughly. Roughly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah roughly. <laughs> roughly at 9 PM. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched it, you know, because I have an uncle that had Lyme disease. He had the bullseye rash, the whole thing, and he let it go so long. We thought he was dying, but he was a man. And he didn't go to the doctor, you know? He was just like, be fine. Several years later, we thought we were going to lose him. And we did eventually lose him. But, um, so I watched it, didn't have a rash. I'm like, okay, I'm in the clear. But and I was doing a lot of walking at the time, exercising. I lost weight. I was really trying, I was really trying to take care of myself. And I went from working all day 
going to walk a mile, mile and a half after work to, I couldn't stand up to blow dry my hair. I couldn't stand up in the shower. I would take a shower and I'd have to lay down. I would get dressed and I'd have to lay down. And I don't know how I made it through that time, except that my father instilled this horrible work, work ethic in me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would cry before I went to work. I cried at lunch and I cried before I went back and I cried at night and uh, it was very difficult. And I didn't get treatment for at least three years because Nobody knew what it was. We didn't know what it was. And when I first went to the doctor, when I finally gave up, I got bit in May, went to the doctor in April when I could not, I couldn't walk. Like my feet hurt so bad. And a nurse friend, she's like, you have plantar fasciitis. You need to go get some shots in your feet. Da, da, da. So I went to the doctor. He said, I don't think that's what it is. You have more going on. And I'm like, well, I got bit by this tick back in May. He's like, well, we'll test you for Lyme disease. And he did all these tests. And he was like a PA. He wasn't an MD or anything. Did all the tests, did the thing. And he's like, your Lyme disease test was negative, And I'm sending you to a rheumatologist. So for the next year and a half, I went to like 10 different doctors and had shots in my feet. And he talked about surgery. And I'm like, absolutely not. And I kept, me and my uncle had a lot of the same symptoms, a lot. And so I read up on it and read up on it and read up on it. And I got to, I could not deal with it anymore. And I went back to another doctor and I was just like, look, it cannot be a coincidence that I got bit by a tick and six months later, my health falls apart. It cannot be a coincidence. And he pulled, he's like, well, let's pull up your test results because all these doctors were in the same clinic, pulled it up. And he's like, well, your Lyme titters are elevated, but there's nothing we can do about it now because it's, it's gone on for so long. And I cried a lot and was furious, so, but it took me like another eight months or so before I started treatment, I had to find a different doctor. You have to do your own research. But it, so physically, I had no stamina, couldn't do anything. Mentally, I still have times that, where it's very hard for me. Uh, sometimes I can't even form a sentence. And to find words is very difficult. Let me tell you a stupid story. When I first got back into writing, there was a meetup group in a town that was about an hour and a half from me. And I was like, I'm doing it by God. I'm going to do it. It's some writers. And I was, and I was terrified and I was just going to do it. And so I had just started Lyme treatment. So my brain was like really foggy and really, so I was pretty nervous. Well, when I got there, if it wasn't such a small room, I would have got up and left. <laughs> but it was a small room. The guy's talking. There's like 10 people in there. We're all sitting around this table. And he says, okay, this is what we do. I'm going to give you a genre and a subject. And you're going to write on it for five minutes. And then we're going to read it out loud. And I thought I was going to bark all over myself. 
<laughs> really, I was really worked up because one, I was like, I don't know if I can remember the genre or the subject. He tells me, you know, long enough to put to write. So I was like, as soon as he said it, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. That's how bad my brain was. And I couldn't come up with words. So like, and this is the first writing I've done in 20 years. I hadn't even finished a book yet. I made it through the day. I did not die. <laughs> I wrote some stuff that made people laugh, which was good. That was my goal. And then I left there and I'm like, I am never going back. I am never doing that again. <laughs> and I missed my exit going home because I was so, <laughs> so much anxiety. Mm. But it was stuff like that. Like I, back in 2018, I could have not done this with you. There's no way. And I am still a little nervous doing interviews and stuff because I'm afraid my brain won't work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's just, it's just going to be with me forever. It has vastly improved, but on days that I'm like really tired, uh, there are times it doesn't work. I had a day, the other day, I couldn't make change for a guy in the beauty shop. And I've been making change since I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked for my dad and my husband, he's like, yeah, but you eventually figured it out. I said, no, he had to tell me how much change to give him. I could, I could not do it. I couldn't even subtract. Like that whole thing was like not in my brain. There was nothing. It was empty. Cobwebs. It's magic. So that was like very hard. And so sometimes, yes, it is hard for me to write because I can't find sentences or words. And I don't know if that slows me down. And then just being tired. Having to, I don't know if I was having a relapse. I couldn't decide what it was. If I was having a relapse of the Lyme, if I was going through menopause, if it was stress. <laughs> it was like myriad of factors. Myriad things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But what I, do, what I do love and what I take away from that is that, you know, I've, I have known you since 2020, um, which is already a couple of years. And all of this is stuff that on the surface, I wouldn't be aware of. Had I not known you, had we not sort of spoken in the different things, like you, you handle it well when you have taken this kind of adversity and swung it around and, and you're producing and you're creating fiction. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are in much more privileged positions that find a lot of excuses not to do this kind of stuff that they say that they want to do. And I think that you are a prime example of someone who, you know, when the creative and I, I, as I'm about to say, I know it's not sort of well phrased, but as a creative bug bites. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, you pick it yeah. up you take it and, and you carry on and you're making it happen and like not only that but you are doing it well I know we sort of had discussions about like your books and things and they look they look fantastic you're clearly following the process and making all the stuff work um and it's it's as I say it's a joy to, to kind of watch your journey from from my side thank you I don't think I might not have ever got back into writing if it hadn't been for the Lyme disease because that really threw me into I had got back into reading and then that inspired me. I'm like, I can do this. I can do this. This Mm -hmm. is something I can do. And then I'm like, what if I could do this and get off my feet? You know, because I have, I have like two co-infections. One of them is called Bartonella and that is really hard on it. Like 
messes with your capillaries. And so standing on my feet, which breaks your capillaries as you're standing all day, it's like excruciating pain at night. That has improved, but it is not gone. Mm. Uh, so I think that really threw me back into writing. So that is one good thing that has come <laughs> from that stupid tick. <laughs> at least a silver lining. No superpowers, yeah. unfortunately, but at least yeah, no superpowers. Um, we are coming up to time, unfortunately, but the question that I ask everyone before we part is, Renee Gallant, why do you write? And I tried to think of this ahead of time because I know <laughs> that this is a question that you ask. Why do I write? I write for me. I write to, uh, it's just something I've always wanted to do. And I'm glad I came back to it. Yeah, I just need to. Yeah. I'm sure your readers it's appreciate it. It's part of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so where can the listeners find out more about yourself and everything that you're working on? I'm at www.reneegallant.com and I am on all social media as the writer Renee, T-H-E-W-R-I-T-E-R-E-N-E-E. And we'll put the links to that in the show notes. And also, we didn't get a chance to uh, touch on your, your watercolour painting, which is for sale, but everyone can find out more about that on your website. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say a big thank you, Renee, for joining me on the podcast today. A massive thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in. And as always, if you're looking to level up your writing and activate your author career, then head on over to activatedauthors.com to find out all about our community, our resources, and everything else that we've got going on. One more time from myself and Renee. See you next week. Activate your energy.